Our text this morning, as we hear now from the living God and His Word, on this third Sunday after the Epiphany, is Luke, the third chapter, verses 21 to 38. And I say that line every week because we believe the Bible is where we hear the voice of the living God. And I wasn't joking, Darren, when I say that I'm moved by your reading of that text, not just because of how carefully and seriously you took it, but because of the uh, just the, the thought of the history that strikes us as we come to a text like this, and that we are encountering a passage that takes place in a moment of time in history. We're coming then this week and next to this passage. I've decided that I want to take two weeks to talk about both the baptism and the genealogy because they belong together. And while I had hoped to do all of it in one sitting here today, my decision ultimately was that no. But knowing how hard Darren would have worked to prepare the text, I decided I've got to let him read it because it because it does all work together, and I'll allude to some of that, and then we'll fill in more of the picture next week, specifically on the genealogy side of this passage. Trusting the Spirit of God today to show up to us, to take this text and to root it in our hearts, to show us who Jesus is. That's the goal today. We want to see who Jesus is in this season of Epiphany. You remember where we are this morning. John the Baptist is in the Jordan River. He's baptizing the crowds that have come to him. He's been preaching repentance, calling people to rebuild their lives in alignment with the will of God. He was preparing the way of the Lord, Isaiah says. He was preparing the people to see the salvation of God. Remember that line? To see the salvation of God. This is is where we see it. This text today, this is the beginning of seeing the salvation of God. The people come and they thought, you remember, they weren't sure. They thought maybe John was the one they'd waited for. Maybe John was the Messiah. But of course he wasn't, and John says, there's, there's one far mightier than I who's coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Remember last week we talked about this picture of the coming one. So John's not the Messiah. John's not the salvation of God that they've come to see. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus, not John. And so, really, we've spent the last two weeks looking at John's ministry so that we can come right up to this moment when Jesus now appears on the scene. And when Jesus now comes in line with all the others to John to be baptized. That's where we are. And so it's here in these verses this morning that we meet Jesus in Luke's Gospel. In one way... For the first time. Now, I know he's been born and that there was much surrounding that. And though we didn't look at it, that Luke has a passage about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple. All of that's significant. But it's here now, near the end of Luke 3, 
that we come, in a sense, to the pivot point in the beginning chapters of Luke. This is the point at which there's a transition now from the introductory material of this gospel into the ministry of Jesus Christ. And if we were continuing beyond Epiphany, which we're not, in the gospel of Luke, you'd see that, that that's how we move forward at this point. So we've looked since the beginning of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany now. We've looked at the prophetic lead-up to John, to Jesus. We've considered the birth. We've, we've talked a little bit about the early days of Jesus in that moment in the temple with Simeon and Anna. And now here Jesus is, 30 years old. The ministry of John the Baptist is preparing the way. And it's in these dramatic verses that we meet him. Jesus the Messiah at the dawn of his ministry. This is the beginning of what was promised, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God, so that I'm suggesting to you, my thesis this morning is that just these two verses, and then the genealogy that will follow that we'll talk about more next week, but the two verses that we have here are critical because they are all about who Jesus is. And we're in Epiphany, after all. That's why we're in. A, that's why I'm doing this. You may know that the baptism of Jesus is commonly celebrated, remembered in this season, and no wonder, because it's here that we learn a great deal about who Jesus is. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's interesting that if you look at the baptism in Luke's gospel here, you'll note that Luke doesn't actually record the baptism. Did you notice that? Did that strike you? Luke doesn't describe the baptism happening. He just says Jesus had been baptized. It already happened. Jesus had been baptized by John, even though John, we know from other gospel accounts, would have thought it better had it been the other way around, that Jesus should have baptized him. But this observation that Luke doesn't actually describe the baptism tells us that the point of these verses isn't in the fact that Jesus was baptized. I'm not even going to speculate about why Jesus was baptized. Other Gospels address that a bit more. The point of the verses here is who Jesus is shown to be in the events that follow his baptism. So let me just read those two verses once more, and then I'll give you the outline of where we're going this morning. Luke 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, I hope you've heard it read twice now that you've at least taken a brief moment and allowed that scene to play in your mind. I, I mean, I know we can't accurately necessarily know exactly what everything looked like in a scene like this, but you can't help but picture it, right? When you read something like this, the entire Trinity is present. One God in three persons, now present simultaneously. And this is just one of those texts, friends, that has more in it then we can responsibly hope to get out in a 30-minute sermon. It's a complex picture, just two verses. 
but I'm suggesting for you it's all there, and I want to try and take it apart as much as I can. And there's three things specifically I want to look at with you in this scene that I hope you've allowed yourself to picture a bit as you've heard it read here a couple of times. First, the heavens were opened. Why? What's, what's the significance of the heavens being opened? Second, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, Luke says, in bodily form like a dove. Why? What's that about? What does that mean? And then thirdly, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What's that statement about? What is this saying about who Jesus Christ is? That's the whole sermon from here out. Three things to look at as we do it, putting together a picture of Jesus, mindful that we're going to complete some of this next week in the genealogy, because these events that follow Jesus' baptism are not taken out of the blue. In fact, what I'm suggesting this morning is that this is all a very carefully constructed scene that contains in every part of it echoes of the Old Testament, all of which are designed to say something very important about who Jesus is right at the start of his ministry. So if you have your Bibles out, you can turn to the various places that I'll reference, though I won't give you page numbers most of the time. Just for time's sake here, you can listen, you can turn there. But this is where we're going, three events, as we talk about who Jesus is. It's pretty dense. There's a lot of Old Testament in this sermon. It's packed in, in two verses in this point in Luke, but I want to try and do it with you. So Luke says that the first event after the baptism of Jesus was that the heavens were opened. So here's a question. Who opened them? (laughs) Because the verb's in the passive voice. It says, the heavens were opened, not the heavens opened themselves. And of course you know the answer to that question. The answer is God. God opened the heavens. God, the one who created the heavens, the one who controlled the heavens, it's God who opened them, and it's God who opened them just as his people had been waiting for him to do. When he would come to demonstrate his saving power, in other words, this is intentional. This is an intentional symbolic moment. So to show you that, I'd like you to go or listen to Isaiah chapter 63. If you want to turn there, fine. If you want to listen, fine. Isaiah chapter 63, beginning here in verse 15. Isaiah 63, verse 15. We're going to read a long section of it, so listen carefully. Isaiah is speaking at this moment to the Lord. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. 
you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And then here we go in Isaiah chapter 64 now, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. And I know it says rend and not open, but it's the same verb in the Greek Septuagint that would translate that Hebrew. It's the same Greek verb as is used in Luke chapter 3 for the opening of the heavens, the rending of the heavens in Isaiah. Oh, that you would open, rend the heavens, and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Saved indeed. Saved by the God-man, Jesus, the one who came down, we say it every week in the creed, who came down from heaven. What a way to begin the ministry of Jesus, God opening the heavens as Isaiah pleaded for him to do. Opening the heavens, stepping out to address the people, entering into their everyday world to reveal salvation. This is the God who acts for those who wait for him, who comes to save. Who is Jesus? The heavens opened for him. He's the Savior. He's the one who's come to save us from our sins, in which we have been a long time, Isaiah says. And you can sort of keep your finger there in Isaiah because we're not going to go too far from it when we now talk about the second event in these two verses of Luke 3. The heavens were opened first, and then Luke says, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, I actually don't think you can make much of the dove part of it, so I'm not going to. But the descent of the Holy Spirit onto Jesus, what is the significance of that? What's the significance of the Spirit descending on Jesus? Well, let me first suggest that the significance is not that this is the arrival for the first time of the Spirit in Jesus' life. I don't think that. We've already seen in Luke that beginning with his conception, the Spirit has been involved in every aspect of Christ's life. 
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I don't believe that this is the first time that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. What I do think is that this is where the Spirit is revealed, shown, to be operating in Jesus' life. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is said to come upon individuals, to anoint them, to empower them, often for a special service of some kind. And so the Spirit came on people such as Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and David and Elijah and Ezekiel and Micah and on and on the list would go. We know from our study in Galatians, we talked about how the Spirit was not present to all of Israel under the Old Covenant, but that the Spirit was present to individuals, sometimes for special service, present to the faithful members of Israel to anoint, to empower them to live faithfully. And we're meant to see here then, I think, that Jesus too is being anointed and empowered. And I think in Jesus' case, it's in a very specific way that the descent of the Spirit on Jesus is meant to point to him as the future Davidic figure, great David's greater son, the Messiah. It's Isaiah here once again we go to. Isaiah who makes clear that God would give the Spirit to the Messiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 if you want, or just listen. If you flip back to Isaiah 11, you know many of these texts. Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Luke's already talked about how Jesus has grown in wisdom and stature and a favor with men in his gospel at this point. So there's echoes here of the Messiah and the Spirit of the Lord resting on him. We could go to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. We'll come back to this in a moment. Behold my servant, Isaiah says, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We'll come back to that text. And then there's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. So Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, now Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. These are words that are spoken by Jesus himself. Just another chapter later in Luke's Gospel, if you know it, claimed by Jesus himself. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, Jesus takes those words and says, I, I am him. So who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is the promised son of David who would come to deliver his people, to proclaim the good news, to judge the nations. The descent of the Spirit is, I believe, meant to point us back to texts like those in Isaiah. That Jesus would carry out this messianic ministry 
by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit descending after Jesus was baptized is a symbolic act indicating publicly that Jesus was empowered for his life and ministry by the Spirit. And I do want to take a little time on that point and emphasize it because right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry we're meant to see, I think, that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, that he did everything he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. That in fact up to this point for 30 years we believe that Jesus had resisted sin, that he'd grown in wisdom and stature and favor, as Luke says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he'll continue by the power of the Holy Spirit in his sinless obedience, in his triumph over temptation in, in Luke 4, in his preaching, in his healing, in his casting out demons, in his death, in his resurrection, all of it accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. It'd be something for us to consider more fully another time, maybe in another text. But when Jesus came into human history as a man, he emptied himself. Christians believe that he was still God, but that he emptied himself of the continual use of his divine attributes. He had to. He chose to go to one place in time in history. He chose to go to a place where he would be growing in wisdom and stature and favor. Jesus never ceased to be God, but he set aside the use of his divine attributes so that the preponderance of Jesus' life on earth is lived fully as a human being. And so he grew and worshipped and resisted temptation and said yes to the Father and did all that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why... Jesus becomes for us the single greatest example of what it means to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that if you want to know what it means to be baptized with the Spirit, you can look to Jesus. And if you want to know what it means to be led by and filled with the Spirit, you can look to Jesus. And if you want to know what it means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit and what a picture of a life is that is that way we can look to Jesus the man who lived life perfectly always completely empowered by the Holy Spirit who then becomes the one who pours out that same spirit in his church Paul says the spirit is the spirit of Christ it's Jesus who pours out his spirit on his people Jesus empowers us in other words to continue his ministry to continue living a life of faithfulness as he sends us the Holy Spirit to do that. Right. So to be spirit-filled and spirit-led is to be like Jesus, to be Christ-like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, we're talking about Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, we're nothing. <laughs> Jesus' own life and ministry was led along by the power and presence of the Spirit. So I pray for you and for this church every day in a very simple way, simply, Lord Jesus Christ, send your Spirit. Lead us by your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit. Empower us by the Spirit. That's how you lived. That's how we're to live. Without the Spirit, we're nothing. With the Spirit, we can be like Jesus. So who is Jesus? He's the Savior. He's the one who comes from heaven and saves us from our sins. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. 
He's the one anointed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, promised Son of David, come to deliver his people, living as an example for us by the power of the Spirit. Finally then, the third event, the voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased, it says. It's only three times that God speaks in this audible way from heaven in the New Testament that I can come up with. One, at the baptism of Jesus. Two, at the transfiguration of Jesus. Three, as Jesus is going to the cross. So it's pretty clear here that this is a direct claim from God the Father about Jesus the Son. And yet, at the same time, there is even here, I am suggesting to you, an intentional echo of not one and not even two, but potentially three Old Testament texts that stand behind this voice from heaven. Three Old Testament texts. And I want you to hear them and see who Jesus is. I want you to see, Luke wants you to know who Jesus is. Because it's all here, but we have to know the Old Testament to see the nuances, to hear these echoes. So three Old Testament texts as we wrap this up about the voice coming from heaven. The first, you heard it at the opening of the service, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7. Here's verse 7 of Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. What does it mean to be the son of God? What's Psalm 2 all about? When's the last time you read Psalm 2? Read it this week. Psalm 2 is about a king. Psalm 2 is about a king whom the Lord himself sets on Zion in answer to the raging of the nations and the rulers who set themselves against him, a king for whom the Lord will make the nations his heritage, it says. A king for whom the ends of the earth will be his possession. Here's Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's Jesus. Jesus is that king. Jesus is the regal figure of Psalm 2. Jesus is that ultimate one. He is that ultimate king who will dash the nations. He's the one who is to be served. The last line of Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The nations can take refuge in him and be blessed, or they can plot against him and be dashed to pieces. You are my son, God says. I don't know what you picture before when you think about the baptism of Jesus. This is a powerful declaration. Jesus is the great and ultimate king. That's the first text behind this voice. But then secondly, God says to Jesus, With you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. Now the wording here doesn't translate to something quite as obvious when I read this. So you're not going to hear it immediately in the English quite as clearly. So you'll just have to trust me that there's reasons why this is connected linguistically. 
that in that phrase, with you I am well pleased, the voice from heaven is echoing now, in addition to Psalm 2 here, now another text from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 42, verse 1, that I said we'd come back to when I talked about the Spirit. We've been here already. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And again, the language in how it's translated here doesn't show the verbal correspondence in the way that is present. In whom my soul delights. What's going on here? That's Isaiah 42, verse 1. That's God speaking to the servant figure of Isaiah. It's God speaking to the one who will do God's will, who has God's anointing, we already discussed that, by the Spirit, speaking to the servant as the one in whom God takes delight. It's Jesus of whom God says, it's with you that I'm well pleased. So now you've got to put it together. Jesus is the king. You are my son. But Jesus is also the servant of Isaiah. With you I am well pleased. If you know anything about the servant figure in Isaiah, and I know I'm just drawing from all kinds of Old Testament knowledge today and assuming you, you have some of it, but if you know anything about the servant figure of Isaiah, you probably know this, that he's known as the suffering servant of Isaiah. That he's the one of whom Isaiah says later in chapter 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <laughs> you see, you have, you have to bring together the thing that was the hardest thing for people to bring together, which was that the king who would dash the nations would himself be crushed. Handel's Messiah should be singing in your head at all these texts, but you put these together, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Jesus is the one who's the anointed the king, the son of God, the one who exercises the very authority of God. And... He's the servant in whom God is pleased, the servant who would be crushed and wounded and bear our iniquities. And there's two of the three texts that are in view here in this voice that speaks. And I think there's one more. Thirdly and finally, God says to Jesus after his baptism, not simply, you are my son. That's what Psalm 2 has. He says, you are my beloved son. And that word beloved is not in Psalm 2. Where's that from? Now, I'll tell you this is slightly more tentative, full disclosure, and I tell you that because scholars disagree. But I go here, I mean, you pay me to tell you what I think, so I go here with those who see in this Word choice, beloved, an echo, another echo, an Old Testament echo from Genesis, this time Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. Just listen to this. You'll recognize the context, Genesis 22, verse 2. 
God said to Abraham, Take your son, Abraham. Take your beloved son, Isaac. Your beloved son, the one whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now you know that Abraham in the end didn't have to do that. But listen, Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And if all of this is right, then maybe we've got the complete picture right here. That in calling Jesus his son, God is not simply saying that he's the kingly son of God from Psalm 2. He is that. But Jesus is also God's beloved son, as Isaac was to Abraham. And like Isaac, Jesus is marked as a sacrifice. But unlike Isaac, Jesus will actually be that sacrifice. So that maybe in this voice from heaven, we're meant to see that God would have known and felt even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. God the Father. Something like Abraham did when he knew the son whom he loved was to die. What if all of that is just right there in the baptism of Jesus. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased Who is Jesus? Who is this man standing in the Jordan River, 30 years old, about to begin a three-year ministry that will change the world? He's the Savior from heaven. The one for whom the heavens open. The one who's come to save us from our sins. He's the Messiah. The anointed Son of David. Come to deliver his people, to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim deliverance, to proclaim judgment, and live a life empowered by the Spirit. He's the Son of God, meaning he's the eternal King, the ruler of the nations. He's the Savior, he's the Messiah, he's the King. And yet, even at this earliest moment of Jesus' public ministry, the path that he's on is clear, maybe, if we hear this voice rightly. He is the one they'd waited for. He was their Savior, their Messiah, and their King. But this King had come to die. He is the suffering servant of God who will bear our iniquities. He is the beloved son of his heavenly father who's destined for the cross. This is the third Sunday after the epiphany. This is the salvation of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.